0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com.
0: Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Café, Taste and imbibe to your heart's content and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash
2: gala. Doing things like filling a cow horn with manure and then uh, and then burying it underground for the winter months, and then digging it up, uh, taking the composted material that that manure has turned into and putting a little bit into a barrel of water and then stirring it for an hour and creating a vortex in one direction and then stopping the vortex and stirring in the other direction and you do that for one hour and then the water that you have at the end of that a group of people usually often will will take this water and go out and spray the fields
1: you could be forgiven for thinking that just sounded like a recipe for witches' brew. But it's actually a technique used in biodynamic agriculture, a slightly strange and esoteric approach to farming. In celebration of Halloween this week, we're embracing the spooky, the scary, and the sometimes silly side of food, from sin eaters to bananas. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. <laughs> First up, a history lesson on How to Eat Your Sins, from Jessica Kreinchitsch. It's
3: 1838. Victoria has just been crowned Queen of England, and cholera has ravaged Europe for the second time. The contagion wipes out 16,000, while smallpox and scarlet fever send 20,000 to their graves in England alone. Industrialization may have transformed the working class forever, but the reapers' work hasn't changed since the beginning of time. The Victorians were obsessed with death, and rightly so. With poor sanitation and chronic hunger plaguing the booming population, death was an everyday occurrence and in a largely Protestant society, concerns about what would happen to loved ones after death was a serious matter. From these concerns grew the popularity of a more devilish occupation, the sin eater. Give yourself over to man's more hedonistic tendencies and you wouldn't be making it to the great beyond. The sin eater's job was to ensure that you did. Food or drink would be passed over the deceased, absorbing their sins. After speaking a short incantation, the sin-eater would consume these victuals, thus transferring the bad deeds of the dead to the living. This ritual was viewed as essentially selling one's soul to the devil, and most sin-eaters were ostracized, despite the need for their services. Most often beggars and members of the lowest classes... The poor could be driven to condemn their own souls in order to survive. Over time, this practice died out, but vestiges of it lasted into the 20th century, with funeral biscuits and burial cakes passed out to mourners in both England and America. So think about that the next time you say you'd give anything for a piece of cake.
1: It's not Halloween without horror films. Next up, Nicole Cornwell considers the intersection between agrarian life and monster movies. Here's some food for thought next time you're scrolling through Netflix.
4: Ever wonder why there are so many farmhouses or cornfields in horror movies? In modern horror, audiences have been captivated by the isolation, mystery, and terror of rural life. By now we are familiar with the well-worn premise. An unsuspecting group of city-dwellers find themselves in harm's way and outside of self-service. Why is this still a timeless trope, and why is agro horror a thing? I took a closer look at some of the genre's most popular and entertaining movies to learn a bit more about our fascination with farm and horror. The slasher flick The Texas Chainsaw Massacre arrived in theaters in 1974. And is still considered one of the most famous and controversial horror movies ever made. A young woman and her friends visit her family's old homestead in Texas, only to find that the odd next-door neighbors are a family of misfit murderers. The old farmhouse becomes a bloody jump-scare hellscape as the friends are hunted one by one. It certainly paints a gory and primitive picture of rural life and paved the way for more movies featuring spooky and, well, problematic portrayals of backwoods characters. Stephen King's story, The Children of the Corn, became an iconic farm horror film in 1984. When a couple passing through rural Nebraska loses their way, they are terrorized by the locals, a cult of, yep, children who worship a corn god and kill anyone over the age of 18. It became a modern classic, featuring spooky cornfields, cornstalk crucifixions, and killer kids. If that sounds like fun, don't worry. There are seven sequels. Seven. A Quiet Place is a recent example of farm horror, mixed with apocalyptic terror. After the Earth is invaded by blind creatures that hunt by sound, a family is forced to retreat to a farmhouse to survive the eeriness of this one is, of course, in its quiet. The movie has almost zero dialogue, and the characters use sign language to stay alive. The message is clear here. Humans have endangered themselves in the modern world with its loud and fast technology and must embrace a simpler rural life to survive. Even in the country, they are not safe. A lesser-known agri-horror flick from New Zealand is Black Sheep. In this comedy from 2005, a secret genetic experiment goes awry on an idyllic sheep farm in the countryside. The sheep transform into zombified monsters, out for blood. Humans get bit, and half-man, half-sheep zombie is born. Black sheep makes fun of GMOs and pharmaceutical misfires in the best way possible. These movies have a few things in common. The most recognizable cultural elements of rural life are all there, almost always at the peril of the main characters. The inhabitants of the agricultural settings are evil villains, and finally, they place farmhouses squarely in the past, utterly unknown, a digression from our modern, industrialized life. They use a little gore and a little satire to remind us how far we've come farmhouse horror is still so popular because it's nostalgic, a spooky daydream of a simpler time.
1: We'll be right back with more Meat in 3. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit RT11.com. Welcome back to Meat N3. In this next story, H. Conley delves into the disturbing dark side of a seemingly innocuous fruit.
5: Bananas are the clowns of the food world. Hear me out. They're both associated with slapstick comedy, pop art, and rock music, and, like it or not, clowns often veer into nightmare territory. If you peel back the layers, bananas are just as unsettling. For starters, the bananas we know and love today, Cavendish, are infertile clones of one another. To learn more about the dark side of America's favorite fruit, I spoke to Dan Capel, the man who literally wrote the book on bananas. From speaking with Dan, I learned we shouldn't fear the slightly sinister cloned Cavendish. We should fear the industry that propagated them. An industry which year after year and generation after generation made the decision to exploit laborers, steal land, dump fungicides, topple governments, and seemingly not learn from any of their mistakes. But before I get into that, Let's start with some history.
6: So the banana didn't really exist as a commercial product until the 1880s when these sort of mechanisms came into place that would allow the banana to be shipped and and shipped cheaply. Um, The banana that was used then was called the Gros Michel. And one of the great advantages it had, besides it tasting better, was that it was a much tougher banana. But one place where the Gros Michel wasn't strong was that it got sick really easily. And starting very soon after uh, the first banana plantations were cultivated in South and Central America, a disease um, called Fusarium wilt, it's a fungus, um, it became known as Panama disease, uh, began attacking these Gros bananas. It was incurable, and the Gros eventually went commercially extinct. The Gros effectively vanished around 1955.
5: When the Gros was being ravaged by Panama disease, the biggest banana company in the world, Chiquita, Found ways to delay the inevitable.
6: The banana industry had this sort of horrific, terrible control um, over these Latin American countries. As soon as a, pl- uh, a field in Guatemala went bad, they could go to a you know down the road and cut down a bunch of rainforest and grow more bananas. They didn't care. They knew these fields would only last three or four years, but there was enough land that they could continually feed the hunger especially of Americans and Canadians, for bananas.
5: Another fungus that affected Gros Michel was yellow Sigatoka. A fungicide was developed in the 1930s called Bordeaux mixture. It killed the Sigatoka and couldn't penetrate the thick skin of the bananas. So it had no effect on consumers. The only problem was that it was a devastating poison to workers. The bananeros who worked with Bordeaux came home with their skin stained blue. They were given the nickname Perico, or parakeets. After a few months, the stains became permanent, their sense of taste would dull and disappear, they'd stop being able to keep food down, and then they'd die. But they were disposable labor, so it didn't make much difference to the industry. Bordeaux was banned in the 60s, but with a new strain of the disease, black Sigatoka, new fungicides have replaced it. These modern chemicals have been linked to increased rates of leukemia and sterility in workers.
6: The guys who founded Chiquita in the 1880s said bananas are going to be cheap and that's why, how we're going to make them possible. So where could you reduce the costs? You could reduce it in places where the people were exploited, where there was corruption, and where the eyes of American consumers, those who cared, would not turn. And so... Early on, you would have prisoners um, shipped down to build the railroads, um, which was a way of getting land for banana companies. Later on, it would be indigenous people. You know, the the Mayan genocide in Guatemala of the 1980s is a direct result of of the way the banana industry operated in that country um, for the 50 years previous. Over 19 interventions um, between 1905, let's say, and 1955, Um, When banana workers attempted to get better lives for themselves, better wages, better health care, massacres of not just banana workers, but their families. This wasn't just done because these guys were evil. Um, In fact, I would argue that their evil went hand in hand with their marketing strategy. I'm not saying they had an excuse, but in order to make bananas work, they were deluded. They had to do these terrible things.
5: The banana that replaced the Gros Michel is called the Cavendish. It's inferior to its predecessor in almost every way. It bruises easily, isn't as flavorful, and is harder to store and ship. But it was supposed to be immune to Panama disease. That held true for decades. However, in 1991, an undiscovered strain of the fungus appeared in a recently planted Malaysian factory farm. Malaysia had over 1,600 acres of Cavendish planted that year. By 1996, there were zero. This strain of Panama disease has crossed oceans and wreaked havoc in Australia, China, the Philippines, and all over Africa.
6: Through all this time, the banana industry said, oh, it's not going to hit here, it's not going to hit there, it'll never come to this place. The best predictor of where Panama disease will appear is where the banana industry has said it won't. (laughs) So so the big place where it hadn't appeared yet was Latin America, the sorts of nearly all the bananas, all the bananas that we get in the United States come from either Central or South America. And they're trying to stop it through generally conventional quarantine measures, because this disease is really contagious. Uh, A single speck of dirt from a disease plantation can go to a a clean one and destroy it. Have they had any luck yet? Um, We don't know, because it's so early. Um, We don't know if it's spread. But What we do know is that every single time modern Panama disease um, has appeared, it has been unstoppable, basically. It's been slowable, but not stoppable.
5: The banana companies no longer own the land where the fruit is grown. They're now just distributors. So while they've lost some of the tyrannical control, they still have the power to decide what banana is planted. And until recently, they didn't heed the warnings about the threats to Cavendish.
6: When I wrote my book, you know, Chiquita wouldn't talk to me over the on the record. Off the record, they would say, we don't care. Is this never gonna happen? You'd see their annual reports and go to their stockholders' meetings, and if it would be brought up, which was not often, they would usually say something to the effect of, it's not a problem, because number one, we'll develop a chemical means to combat this, which everyone knows is not gonna happen or, or unlikely to happen. Number two, if it does happen, It's a long time away. And number three, if it's a long time away by then, something else will come along.
5: About five years ago, Chiquita admitted that Fusarium is a serious problem that they are researching ways to deal with. The banana industry isn't transparent about anything, so how they plan on fighting TR4 is unclear. Maybe someday we will see diversified, sustainable banana production, but for now, the future of Cavendish is unknown. What we do know is that the industry loomed large over coups, bribery schemes, and massacres in the so-called banana republics. They used what amounts to slave labor in order to achieve their goals of making bananas cheap and therefore the most ubiquitous fruit in America. They created the modern monoculture-style farm, which Dan describes more accurately as a banana factory where workers are more interchangeable and disposable than the fruit they grow. Every bunch of bananas, laid out in proud uniform displays in groceries across the country, has a litany of ghost stories lurking beneath its thick yellow skin. To learn more about the gruesome details, check out Dan's book, Banana, The Fate of the Fruit That Changed the World.
1: Our final spooky food story this week is about a very different side of the farming world, H. Conley and I teamed up to explain the science behind the sometimes strange, always esoteric world of biodynamic agriculture.
7: So one of these preparations is is actually taking oak bark, stuffing it into a cow skull and burying that cow skull in a creek for a year. And then... And then when we remove that, that oak bark, which is then composted within that cow skull, it is this essence of, of, of water you know, transportation within a plant.
1: This is apple grower and cider maker Eric Schott, who lives and works in the Finger Lakes region of New York. Hannah Forden and I visited his farm in October and got to hear about the biodynamic practices he employs on the orchard. While this oak bark and cow skull routine sounds a little out there, Eric insists on its effectiveness. I
7: guess you could almost say it, like, starts a chain reaction within the field.
1: So let's back up a bit. What is biodynamic agriculture? Simply put, it is a form of alternative ag that is similar to organic farming. It can evoke images of bucolic farms full of cows bowing their majestic horns and eating lush grass some associated with mystic herbal potions and cosmic forces being transmitted into herds and fields. To understand the mindset behind biodynamics, you have to look at one man's mindset in particular.
2: In 1924, Rudolf Steiner gave these eight lectures uh, that are today published under the name uh, The Spiritual Foundation for Agriculture.
1: This is Jordan Walker, Operations Coordinator at Turtle Tree Seed.
2: Which is the only exclusively biodynamic seed company in the United States.
1: Jordan sat down with H. Conley to tell us more about the originator of biodynamics.
2: He was one of the very few public intellectuals uh, raising any concern about industrial agriculture, because at the time, everybody thought this was wonderful. They thought fertilizers were just fantastic, they thought monocropping was the best thing going. And so he said, Actually, this is going to cause huge problems. And so, in these eight lectures, he speaks about what's actually going on in the relationship between uh, the soil and the minerals that make up the planet Earth. But he was really clear that nobody should just take his word for it, that what he wanted was for farmers to act as researchers and to use their farms or their gardens or their 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 dairy herd or whatever it was as a little research laboratory and to research what he was saying about the relationship to the planets and the moon and um um and the different aspects of uh, of the land to the farm
1: Steiner passed away soon after giving these lectures, but he succeeded in kickstarting the biodynamic movement. This idea of using a farm as a research laboratory is alive and well at many places, including Redbird Orchard. Here's Eric Schott again.
7: I will say that engaging in biodynamics, the further you, you, you actually participate in it, the more it makes sense, which is... Which to me is, is really cool. So um, these herbal preparations, um, some of them help the, the soil microbiology to kind of wake up or come in sync with the spring rhythms. Some of these um, herbal preparations help, to help the trees to fend off fungal pressures. Um, other ones help to capture light. And, and really um, enhance the tree's ability to photosynthesize. So there's, there's this kind of approach that is, is harmonizing the farm and bringing it into balance.
1: Biodynamic practices can be observed on small farms around the world, but the effects of Steiner's teachings have also had big impacts. They inspired the first CSAs, the first ecological certification, and the concept of organic agriculture. Rachel Carson's sources in Silent Spring were biodynamic farmers who filed a lawsuit claiming DDT was damaging their farms. They've been on the front lines of the environmental movement and pioneers of regenerative agriculture. So sure... Biodynamic farmers are sometimes akin to mystical yeomans using potions, cow skulls, and planetary forces to maintain their fields and herds. But you should also thank them for being forward-thinking stewards and protectors of the land. That's our show. I hope your Halloween is full of treats and not tricks. Special thanks this week to Jessica Kreinchich, Nicole Cornwell, and H. Conley. Meetin' 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meetin' 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hello, write us anytime at ideas at That's all spelled out.